Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. Today's scripture comes from Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You shall give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish amongst them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. You may be seated. As you're being seated, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come now to your word. Lord, wanting to be fed, just like those thousands on the Galilean countryside did 2,000 years ago. God, feed us with your word. Lord, we are so hungry. We're so needy. And so it's to you, the almighty God, that we turn now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Daniel. If you have a Bible, I do invite you to grab it, open it up. Not only are we going to be uh, looking at the section that was just read, I'm going to be reading a little bit from the section beforehand. So you will find it helpful to have a Bible with you. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there are some at the Connect table at the back. If you don't have a Bible at all, please take that home with you. That's our gift to you. But it is good to have a Bible open this morning. Uh, This morning, we are looking at a story that is likely familiar to many of us whether you grew up in the church or not, right? You can, you can picture it with me. Out comes the flannel board. <laughs> and then comes the five French baguettes and the two sockeye salmon stuck on that flannel board. And, and then you have the, the red and white checkered uh, picnic blanket, right? And you have this beautiful, quaint little picnic by, by the seaside, 
The, the reality is that the true significance of this event is vastly different. If you take all of the Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are only two miracles that are recorded in all of those Gospel accounts. One of them is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and the other one is the feeding of the 5,000. The reason is, is because each of these authors see this story as having great explanatory power. It's full of language and imagery which explains who Jesus is and what he has come to do. What is it that we come to see this morning? What is it that that audience first realized nearly 2,000 years ago? It's this. So, so in the book of John, John's a little less subtle when he gives this account, and, and he puts it this way. So they gathered them up and filled the 12, the 12 baskets, right? So the same story, with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that they, he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Who would they understand Jesus to be? King. This is, this is not a, a quaint picnic. This is actually the makings of a revolution. Jesus is displaying his ability to enact change as the one who rightfully sits on the throne. The question for us this morning, though, is what type of king is he? I have three points this morning. I'm not going to tell you what they are, uh, but they each start with D. Okay, here we go. Let's work our way through this. First one, he is a different king, a different king. Uh, notice, first off, that Jesus is actually declaring himself to be king here, right? Let, let me show that to you. So look at verse 30 to 34 again. So the apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of him. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them because they were like a, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. We hear sheep without a shepherd and our mind likely goes to some compassionate caretaker, which Jesus is. But in the Old Testament, we actually hear that language sheep without a shepherd, to refer to a leader, to a leader type. So here the same language used in the book of Numbers. The context here is Moses has just been told that he will no longer be leading the nation of Israel into the promised land. 
And so he's pleading with the Lord to give them someone else. And so he says this, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. They're sheep without a shepherd, Moses says. They need a leader. They need some sort of king type who will guide them, take charge, protect them, liberate them, and ultimately lead them to the promised land. And Jesus now says, I am that shepherd king. I am the leader Israel has long waited for. I am Moses' true successor. And how does Jesus show that? By doing exactly what Moses did. By doing what Moses did. So Moses in history, is the individual who led the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land. How did he do that? He brought them through the waters of the Red Sea. There was a miraculous water crossing. And then when they were in the wilderness, he fed the people by giving them manna, this this bread from heaven. Now, Jesus is going to do the very same thing. He feeds them in the wilderness with bread from heaven. Mark is very intentional here. He repeatedly uses this word desolate or wilderness. He says in verse 31, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Verse 32, and they went away in the boat to a desolate place. Verse 35, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. Jesus is going to feed his people with bread in a wilderness setting. And then In the section immediately after ours, what happens? He walks on water. Jesus walks on water and you get a miraculous water crossing. It's the same two events. Jesus is saying, I am the true and greater Moses. I am the leader king who has come to lead my people to the ultimate promised land. But Jesus wants to make it very clear that he is unlike other kings. He's different. See, Mark does something very fascinating here in his retelling of this account. He places it immediately after another banquet, another feast. This time, it's King Herod who's putting the feast up. And you almost have here a a very intentional tale of two feasts or tale of two kings. So look at verses 21 to 29. Here's this feast that has come just before the one in the wilderness. But an opportunity came, verse 21, when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I'll give it to you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? 
And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in and immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Do do you notice the differences here? One feast takes place in a palace, the other in the Galilean countryside. One serves foodie food. I don't know what that is. Other serves simple food, bread and fish. One made by royal chefs, one made by God. One feast is for a select few, nobles and commanders and the elite of the society, and the other for any and all who would want and seek after Jesus. One feast is done to bolster one's reputation and gain approval from his guests. The other one to serve is other-centered. He's self-sacrificing. One is birthed out of sensuality. You can only imagine the kind of erotic dancing here that was done to please Herod so much so that he would offer half of his kingdom away. And the other birthed out of compassion. Compassion. Look at verse 34 again. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. Compassion is the one ingredient Jesus needs to serve up this feast. That word compassion is only used to describe Jesus in all of the New Testament. It's this deep, internal, it's this, it's this, uh, this emotion that hits you in the core. It's, it's the greatest of feelings. His, his whole bowels are are shaken and and disturbed because of what he sees. When Jesus looks at the crowd, whereas one might see that everything on the surface is fine, they're just normal citizens living a normal life, going about their normal business, Jesus sees what's actually going on. He sees right through them to their pain, to their hopelessness to their aimless wanderings, wondering if there's any purpose in life after all. He sees through to their hidden addiction that they're trying to break free of. He sees through to their longing to be loved, to their wondering if life will ever get better. Um, this, this week, as a staff, we were made aware of um, not one suicide, but two suicides uh, to close acquaintances of ours. Um, one was of a young man, of a pastor, who served here in Vancouver. He had uh, just graduated from high school and had plans to go to SFU. On the surface, 
so much hope. So much brightness in his future, and yet internally just dark and despairing. And Jesus sees that in your life. He sees the, the, the pain that you're going through. When Jesus looks at you, do you realize he does not feel disappointment? He does not feel anger or frustration. He feels compassion. He looks at you and he's moved all the way to his core. And so, so what does King Jesus do in response? When he feels that compassion, what does he do? He teaches them. He teaches them. He, he feeds them with his word. So verse 34 says again, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to, what? Teach them many things. He, he feeds them, first and foremost, with that which food cannot satisfy. Uh, earlier in Mark, we are told what Jesus' message was all about. We read this in Mark 1. Now, after John was arrested, so that's the same John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is king and as king, he has come to establish his kingdom. No longer will there be, Jesus tells us. No longer does Jesus, he shows us it. There's going to be no more sickness and suffering. No more pain. No more uncleanliness. No more wanting to feel love. No more feeling like you don't belong anymore. You see, the kingdom of God is not one of consolation. It's not like at the end of your hard life, you just get this token prize. Here you go. Hope this makes things better. No, no, it, the kingdom of God is not one of consolation. It's one of restoration. It's one of Jesus renewing and restoring everything back to the way it was always supposed to be. The, and the reason that is possible is because Jesus defeats evil and sin itself. You see, the exodus Jesus brings is not a exodus out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. It's an exodus out of slavery to sin and through the waters of death itself. Death no longer has the final word. One day we will experience everlasting life, experience life the way it was always meant to be. In Jesus, all our human longings are satisfied. Jesus is the king we've always needed. He's a different king. Secondly, then, what type of king is he? He's a delegating king. A delegating king. Look at verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. So it's, it's getting late. And, and the disciples 
make what seems like a very reasonable suggestion. Right? Hey, Jesus, it's late. It's probably like 5, 6 p.m. It's when the sun begins to set at that time. And, G- and they go to Jesus and say, Jesus, you should probably dismiss the crowd now. They're, they're going to need some food. They're going to get hangry. Go, go, go send them on their way. And, and Jesus says, actually, um, we're going to feed them. We're, we're going to feed them. But more, more precisely, uh, you feed them. You feed them. That word, you, in verse 37, that's an emphatic you. No, no, no. You do it. You, see those, see those crowds? You, you do it. You, you feed them. Now, Jesus, he could have done this by himself. Repeatedly, he shows himself in the Gospel of Mark to be this great miracle worker. He doesn't need assistance. He's not lacking in power. Um, But Jesus here is intending to teach his disciples that God's mission and his kingdom is established through his followers. Through us. We're supposed to feel the same compassion he feels. We're supposed to be the ones who do the work to bring restoration in this broken world. What's incredible is that Jesus chooses to use us in our weakness. (laughs) In our weakness. Everything about this situation is uh, trying to highlight and be orchestrated in such a way that, that shows us how ridiculous and impossible it is for the disciples to feed this crowd. Right? So, 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 so hear this in verse 37 and following, right? You give them something to eat, Jesus said. And then they respond. They said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So, so first off, when it says there's 5,000 men, that's being gender very specific. It's 5,000 men. It's, that's likely 20,000 people when you include women and children. Secondly, um, 200 denarii is a year's worth of wage. Now, um, not not only would they not likely have that uh, at their disposal, but also no one carries around that much cash, okay? Also, they are in a desolate place. Um, There are no shops around because it's the wilderness. And even if there were shops, no one's carrying meals worth for 20,000 people. And then... As a joke, they go and they find five loaves and two fish. Again, please hear me. Um, I've always wondered, like, which mother in their right mind packs their child with five loaves of bread and two fish, right? Who needs that much food? But again, these are not like large French baguettes or these sockeye salmon. Uh, the, The language there, those are five crackers, (laughs) 
Those are two little sardines. This is a first century lunchable. And they bring it to Jesus and they go, here's what we got. You asked us to go and look. And, and look at what Jesus does. So verse 40. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Please don't miss it. The point may be obvious, but please don't miss this. When we take what little we have and we bring it before Jesus, when he blesses it and multiplies it, he can do far more than is humanly possible. That's actually the point here. That Jesus takes the little we have and does the miraculous. See, inadequacy is not a problem for Jesus to overcome. Inadequacy is actually a prerequisite for being useful in God's kingdom. Um, listen to the way we, uh, Paul puts it in the book of 2 Corinthians. He says this, So, but he, that's God, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Why does God like to use weak people? Why does God like to use weak people? Why is it a prerequisite for being useful in his kingdom? The first reason is, let me give you two. There's many more, but let me give you two. The first one is so that God gets all the praise, all the glory, and so that we can get the joy. Right? When God takes us in our weakness, and then something far greater happens than we expected, who gets the praise? He does. Not me. Not us. He, he gets all the credit. And then we get that wonder and that, that joy of being just filled with dismay. The fact that God actually wanted to partner with me. He actually in, invited me in into his work. What a great God. That he would actually allow us to have a front row seat into seeing the miraculous be done. So the first reason God uses weak people is for his glory and our joy. But the second reason he uses weak people is to assure us of our love or of his love for us. It's to assure us of his love. Um, imagine that God used strong people, capable people. Right? So we have those days where we feel like we are just crushing it. Right? We have... Um, Wisdom and power oozing from our yin-yangs. We are just crushing life, right? Maybe you have those days 
like once in a while. And we go, yeah, my God's using me right now. What happens then when you're no longer living life that way? What happens when you feel like you've messed up? When you are failing? Then comes a very legitimate question, right? Does God still have a plan for me then? Will he still use me? Am I of any value in his kingdom? Does he still love me? But God doesn't work that way. God uses weak people so that we know our goodness is not the basis for his acceptance. We know that God's love is not conditional on us nailing it. It's conditional on Jesus nailing it. God never loved us because we were great. He loved us because Jesus was great. And so when he uses us in our weakness, we know on our best days and in our worst days, he still loves us. I don't, I don't have time for this, but I need to say this. Um, what's the worst you do? You kick me out of this church. Send me off to another church. Um, to be constantly used by God is exhausting. To feel like you look out into this world, we're supposed to feel compassion, which we ought to. There is no lack of brokenness around us. And to feel like again and again God is calling us to serve out of our weakness to those people, to, to pour ourselves out. Man, that's hard. I don't know if you feel that sometimes. You just feel like there's, a, there's another opportunity at your doorstep and you're supposed to step in and help and you just don't know how much you have left to give. Um, imagine you're the disciples. So, so verse, verse 31 says, right? Jesus tells them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Because they're exhausted. Jesus sees it in them. They're weary from their latest ministry bout. So come, come on, let's go. Let, let's go get some rest, Jesus says. Uh, they're so tired, we find out, that the crowds run to the other side of the lake faster than they can row the boat. Okay? Th then they get there, and we're told, again in verse 31, they were so busy that they didn't even have time to eat. They didn't even have time to eat. And they get to the shore... And they see the crowds, and instead of turning the boat the other way and going back to the other side, Jesus goes, come on, let's go serve them. And you just imagine the disciples. Whew, okay. And off they come, out of the boat. And then Jesus goes, okay, time to feed them. And they, they go, we haven't even eaten ourselves. We are empty, Jesus. And yet he calls them to serve. And, and look at how it ends. 
Verse 43. And they took up how many baskets? Twelve. Twelve baskets full of broken pieces of the fish. Why twelve? One for every disciple. Um, maybe you've heard the nursery rhyme. We teach it to our kids downstairs. Mary had a little lamb. T'was given her to keep. But then it joined the local church and died for lack of sleep. <laughs> Maybe you feel that. And yet you need to hear when we pour ourselves out for Jesus, Jesus always makes sure there's enough for us left over. Now I get that. You need to nuance that. You need to figure out if you're a people person and if you're actually trying to replace Jesus and be adequate and be enough in people's lives. I get that. But if you're faithfully pouring yourself out for others, Jesus will make sure that there is an abundant supply left over for you. Keep pouring yourself out for him. La last point. Number three. So, so go back to these two feasts, right? Tale of two feasts. King Herod and King Jesus, many differences, right? We saw those. There's one thing, though, in common in both of those feasts. One thing in common. Do you know what that is? What's that one thing in common? Ready? They both end in an execution. They do. One is of John the Baptist, beheaded, head put on a platter. The other is the crucifixion of Jesus, the Son of God. What type of king is Jesus? Third point. He's a dying king. A dying king. Um, Tim Keller rightly points out that every revolution begins with some major event. There's some sort of cataclysmic event. There's some sort of spark that puts everything into motion. Right? Jesus can, can teach about it. He can tell you how, it's, how it ought to be. But then something actually needs to happen to, to bring it about. And what is it that happens? It's death. It is a death. What, what no one saw coming, though, is that it wasn't the death of another at the hands of Jesus. It was the death of Jesus himself. Now, you, you go, where, where's death in our passage? Other than of a couple fish, right? Where's, where, where's the death? Look, look more closely here. Verse 41. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. Do you want to know what happens just a few chapters later? Jesus is sitting around the table with his disciples on the night before he is to be betrayed and crucified. And we read this in Mark 14. And as they were eating, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. It's the same words. It's the same language. What Jesus did by breaking bread to feed the 5,000 that day was to prefigure his death. His body being broken to bring about the full nourishment of our lives. 
You see, bread, if bread remains whole, then we're broken. Right? So you put, a, you put a loaf of bread on the table. If it remains intact, if it remains whole, that means it's uneaten and we're broken. But if you break that bread, if it's torn to pieces, then we're made whole. In the same way, if Jesus remains whole, then we are broken. But if Jesus is broken, then we can be made whole. It's his death that defeats the power of sin. It's his death that pays the penalty for our wrongdoing. It's his death that forgives us and makes us whole. And who is invited into that? Who can get in on that good news? Verse 42 says, And they all ate and were satisfied. Everyone and anyone can be satisfied in Jesus. If there's one place the Old Testament regulated, there's more rules. There's more rules in one place than in all other places. You know where that place is? It's around the table. So many laws written to make sure you eat properly. It's all about clean food prepared in clean ways for clean people. And Jesus says, you know who can eat? Everyone and anyone can eat at my table. It's not about being clean. It's not being up to snuff. It's not having your life in order. No, come and eat from Jesus and be satisfied. Let me end with some Spurgeon. He says this, Come then, weary, hungry sinner. You have nothing to do but to take Christ. Open your mouth and receive the food. Faith to receive what Christ provides is all that is needed. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we confess that we have turned to so many other things to find nourishment for our souls. God, forgive us and help us to see that you are the one and only one who can ultimately satisfy. Jesus, we want to eat of you. We want to receive your broken body, your blood shed for us, for the forgiveness of our soul, so that our relationship with you might be restored, so that death and sin might be defeated, and so that one day all might be put right. And Jesus, and so we pray, with that in mind, knowing that the, the, the death blow has been dealt to Satan and sin. Lord, would you use us, we pray. God, we want to bring to you not our strength, but our weakness. And we ask God for you to take it and multiply it for your glory and our joy. Use us. Make us whole. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.